Uh, we are in a study of the book of Ezra, the final chapter today, although we're not quite done. Um, I uh, would like to go back and pick up a couple things and also uh, go ahead slightly where we find a little more of the fulfillment of Ezra's project of uh, renewing the people of God as the holy people in Jerusalem. So I'd like to read to you from Ezra chapter 10 down to verse 19. Ezra chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have transgressed, excuse me, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel despite all of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives who, and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonahan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square at the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and have taken pagan wives according to the guilt of, excuse me, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. And all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days. For there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshullam and Shabbethai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, 
they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found. Of the sons of Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak and his brothers, Maasia, Eliezer, Jarib, Gedaliah, and they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram from the flock as trespass offering. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, we are mindful of the words of the Apostle that uh, all these things are written for our admonition, uh, not only for doctrine, but reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished into all good works. So we come to you once again and pray that you would uh, make this passage to be active and fruitful in our lives according to our need. And we pray for wisdom and insight into its difficulties. We pray that nothing should be said amiss, but that uh, your truth should be clearly known by your people for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, during the days of Ceausescu's rule in Romania, the evangelical Christians there were given a very interesting nickname that I just learned about this week. Um, from those days, at least from 50s and the 50s and 60s until now, the, uh, you might say, the, uh, the believers there are known as repenters. Repenters. Um, I, it was probably meant as an insult, I don't know, but personally I, I kind of like the name and I wish that all Christians were known as repenters. I mean, Jesus' first sermon uh, was summarized in these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Paul said he went everywhere preaching repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is. Believers are repenters and we call ourselves believers. Why not repenters, right? Well, I think there's been a, a lot less repenting in the history of God's people than there has need, that needed to be. Warren Wearsby once wrote, quote, We Christians boast that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but perhaps the gospel of Christ is ashamed of us. Well, back to Romania. From at least the 1960s, though, the Spirit of God began a very dramatic work in that land beyond the Iron Curtain at the time. Bibles were smuggled in in secret. Meetings were uh, held in the dark of night. Many lives were profoundly changed. And they were so radically changed that, again, these fellow Romanians looked upon these people and called them repenters. Uh, in 1973, then, one minister who'd previously had his license to preach revoked by the government was surprisingly reinstated, and he was assigned to the Second Baptist Church in Oradea. I hope I haven't missed that name too badly. Uh, Romanian here. He, uh, he began to preach with greater earnestness about prayer and evangelism. However, his burden was not merely for those outside the church. No, he was convinced that the revival for which he had long prayed and suffered had to begin in the church. And he explained it to the people in these words. It is time for the repenters to repent. The sins of the society had slowly crept into the church of Jesus, and he called them to return to the Lord. So, for example, he confronted the people about their habit of stealing from the state. I mean, the government had, for their part, confiscated the farms and factories and forced the people to give the fruit of their labors all to the state. And so the people, who had already had everything stolen from them, felt justified in stealing back from the government. But that is not the way of Christ, he said. No, let him who stole steal no more, but let him work with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. 
the people repented. It was uh, dramatic repentance. And in many areas of life, they began to take holiness very seriously. Those communist days behind the Iron Curtain were characterized by drunkenness in many lands. Uh, His whole church gave up drinking entirely. Uh, They turned from everything that they believed might be displeasing to God. And they entered into a covenant of repentance. They, They learned how to pray earnestly. But for a time, there were no visible signs of change. In fact, the more they prayed, one person wrote, the worse things seemed to be. Until about six months after this. For from June to December of 1974, that church in Oradea baptized 250 new members, and then another 400 in the following two years. And so it continued apace. In fact, at one point, Oradea was believed to be the largest evangelical church in Europe. My point is, as I'm giving you this illustration to introduce our topic this evening, when the repenters repent, the nations are shaken. It's a very powerful and fruitful thing. For the same thing, of course, could be said about these exiles who had returned to Judea. Just a few thousand people at the time. But these were the spiritual people, the leaders of the nation, spiritually speaking, They had risked all to return to the land of promise, to cities and houses that had been destroyed by war, to wrecked fields in order to rebuild the temple and restore the worship of God and again have a holy people in the land. This was far harder than probably anyone expected. But by God's blessing, it was done now a generation later. Ezra, our author, has returned from the exile bringing with him a number of priests and Levites and certain leaders from Judah. And uh, he started a a campaign that he would teach the law of the Lord to Israel. Remember that uh, great verse from chapter 7, that he he set himself to seek the law of the Lord and to uh, apply it to himself first and then to teach it to the people. Well, we're now four and a half months in, and his teaching has begun to have its effect for the people and especially the leaders begin confessing that they had in fact taken Canaanite women contrary to the law of God. And we saw last time God had repeatedly threatened in the law that if they did this, it would be the downfall of Israel. That had happened. Um, I I didn't mention to you, but here's here's Joshua's concluding speech to the people as they had taken the land of Canaan. He said, if indeed you make marriages with them, the people of the land, and go into them, and they to you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations out from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Uh, That actually happened, of course. Israel did uh, begin worshiping the foreign gods, just like those of the nations, from the king on down. And the Lord at last, after much patience and calling them by prophet and prophet, took them into exile. Now, of course, they had at last returned under Zerubbabel and Ezra. But, but they're at it again. And Ezra knew that if this sin began again, that they would be in grave danger. In the last chapter, he prayed, Shall we again join with the people committing these, oblig- these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? I mean, this time there might not be a remnant, he's saying. It is time for the repenters to repent again. And it was not just a matter of simply preserving the holiness of God's people, as important as that was, but you know that the Savior of the world had been promised to come through the line of Judah, which was now in danger of extinction, of blending in with the world. And humanly speaking, anyway, our salvation at this point in history depended upon a tiny population of people some two and a half thousand years ago, because from them would come the Savior. And so the stakes are high. Uh, we, we might also say, and, and, and they knew that also, of course, um, we might say that even in our day, of course, as, as soon as the church becomes like the world and loses all distinction, humanly speaking, the world is losing its hope for salvation. But of course, God would not allow the promise to fail then or now. Nevertheless, it's always a great struggle to be in the world and not of it. And so here's how they decided to deal with it. They began confessing their sins. Ezra takes the lead. He prays a heartfelt prayer of repentance, acknowledging their guilt, appealing to God's mercy. We saw it last chapter. That prayer moved a large crowd, we read here, of men, women, and children who joined him weeping and confessing their sins before the temple. They agree that in three days all the men of Judah will come and gather to them in Jerusalem, and anyone who failed to appear would lose his land and his place among the people of God. So it happened, and we have this vivid paragraph then about the intense emotion and drama as the people there were trembling in the pouring rain, recognizing what was going on, as they then promised to separate themselves, verse 11, from the people of the land and from their pagan wives. And we actually, it's uh, mentioned twice in this chapter, it's not only wives, it's children as well. Uh, uh, no wonder they trembled at this. Well, um, before I go on, I want to handle a great problem that presents itself to us here. I don't want to get sidetracked, but neither do I want to sidestep it, and perhaps it's already occurred to you. I, I do want to spend some time handling that, and then uh, have this before us as a chapter teaching the generations to follow about the blessings and need for ongoing repentance. But first, the problem, the, the problem. Divorcing unbelievers? This was not an ethnic problem, of course. No, there was no ethnic problem at all. Uh, Rahab, uh, Ruth, others brought into the people of God. This was a spiritual problem. But it is a problem. Here's the problem. God's word, from beginning to end, forbids marrying an unbeliever. But then, having married one, it also strictly forbids divorce except for sexual immorality. Well, it is one thing if an unbeliever abandons the marriage, Paul says. A believer is not bound in such a situation. However, the law of Moses says this, when a man takes a wife and then has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and so forth, this is the procedure. Divorce not being a requirement in case of sexual immorality, you understand, the law was written because of the hardness of men's hearts, Jesus points out. But, but Jesus says, look, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. That is the meaning of this uncleanness. Um, that's a true and faithful reading of the law. Now, what can it mean in verse 3 
when it says, let us put away these wives and those who have been born to them and let it be done according to the law. You see the problem? Have I been clear? Did I go through that too quickly? The law did not say to get rid of unbelieving spouses. As a matter of fact, it said there's only one reason that you can get rid of your unbelieving spouse, and this is not it. In fact, Malachi, as we just read earlier, prophesied to the returning exiles that the Lord God of Israel hates divorce. Uh, he's rebuking them about the same time, or a little later probably, for, for a divorce. So what, what is going on in this chapter? Um, I, I will say there's, uh, there's a number of different uh, opinions about this, and uh, I'm going to give you the, the data, my, my, best, my best guess, um, but, but, but here it is. Some think that Ezra was mistaken in his interpretation of the law. Uh, they tried to make it into a PCA position paper, by the way, but was rejected. It um, doesn't seem to fit the passage. Some say it was a temporary expedient to prevent a spiritual disaster that was looming, and that even though uh, divorce should only be, so, uh, so that the, according to the law, therefore, means a certificate of divorce had to be given, but it, the divorce itself was not according to the law. That was an expedient for the need of the time. Well, uh, many people think that. I think that's a difficult reading. Um, but most likely, the answer in my mind is that we have actually a problem in translation, which I'm, I'm, I'm loath to go into. Uh, we're going to have to go into the weeds for a few minutes here. Um, you know, the people that do the translation committees know the language is far, far better than you and I, of course. Uh, nevertheless, uh, here, here, here is what some believe to be the answer, and I, I think this is the most likely answer in my mind, that there's a problem in translation, that what we have here is not marriage, but cohabitation. Cohabitation. Um, I had a friend in the same PhD program here at Virginia Tech who had a, a live-in girlfriend and a, a child together with her, at home, um, been together for a couple years. Somebody asked him if he were married, and he said no. He had a modern relationship uh, with a smile. Well, it's actually not a very modern thing. It used to be much more common before the gospel changed the world. Uh, is that what we have here? Let's start at the beginning, if you'll go with me into the weeds for a few minutes. The, the problem is introduced to us back in chapter 9, verse 2, where we read that they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Now, if you have a New American Standard or a New King James, you'll notice that the words as wives are added in italics. It just says simply that they have taken some of the, their daughters for themselves. I think that the natural implication that one would understand without much thought would be wives. But those italics are there so that you know those words are not in the original. In other words, the passage simply says they have taken some of their daughters for themselves and their sons. We have the exact same thing in verse 12, although the italics are strangely missing in my New King James, at least what I checked. As wives, there also is not in the original, as you might see both from the New American Standard and the ESV. Uh, even the Old King James leaves it out. Don't know why the New King James put it in. But anyway, now we read in chapter 10, 10 times about pagan wives. That time the word is there, starting in verse 2. Um, the word, you might know, is Isha. Uh, anybody ever preach Hebrews, uh, preach uh, Genesis to you, and the man is called Ish, the woman is called Isha. Male, female, so, uh, uh, so a man is Ish, that word can also mean husband, a woman is Isha, can also mean wife. 
uh, same in Greek, actually, uh, where it could do double duty based on context. So, in other words, it could just as easily be pagan women, is what I'm saying. And in verse 10, where you have the, uh, sorry, let's leave that there. So these 10 references could just as easily be translated pagan women, not wives. Furthermore, in verse 10, if you have the ESV, the New American Standard, you have that they married foreign women. You might notice that my translation was different because it's not the ordinary word anyway for being married. In fact, it's the, uh, my, my New King James has taken, they've taken foreign women, probably a little closer, but it's actually just the verb to dwell. Uh, I won't get into the Hebrew here, but in this, in the, in this form, to cause to dwell. You have caused these women to dwell with you. That is the verb used throughout, meaning just as easily, you have caused these foreign women to dwell with you and had children with them. And in the whole book, the, uh, the, there's only one time when the standard word for becoming kin to somebody or joining in marriage is used, and that was in the last chapter uh, that we should uh, Ezra, Ezra prays, looks forward, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Um, he looking, looking ahead here and saying, should we, should we again join in marriage as we did in the past? That was what happened in Israel before, but I don't think it's a smoking gun that it had already happened again, at least not yet. So having to go back and study it this week, I think it's probably the situation here. In other words, in every clear case that we have, uh, there is no wife or marriage that's, uh, that's strongly indicated by the text. Every wife could be woman. Every reference to marriage simply means to take or to, to cause to dwell in your home with you, uh, a very different meaning. Um, and let me give you a contemporary illustration, therefore, of uh, what I think is, is going on. Um, this is from a retired minister who wrote, uh, some years ago, a young woman who had recently started attending my church in California told me that she wanted to be baptized, but she had a problem. She'd been living with a man for 12 years, and they had a seven-year-old daughter together. She knew that it wasn't right to give a confession of faith through baptism and continue living with a man outside of marriage, but... He was her daughter's father, and she didn't know if it was right to leave him. I sought counsel from several pastors and seminary professors. The general consensus was that she should get the marriage legalized before a justice of the peace. But then I found out that the husband was a libertarian who took great pride in the fact that he didn't need a piece of paper from the government to tell him he was married. He yelled and cussed at me on the phone for over an hour, accusing me of breaking up his family. I told him I was not breaking up his family since I advised her to marry him. He was breaking up his own family by fighting the law of the state. If he really loved her, he would provide her at least the legal protection of marriage so that she at least had property rights. It turned out, though, that he loved his libertarian opinions more than he loved her, his live-in partner. When he adamantly refused to marry her, she took their, daughters, uh, she took their daughter and left him, and I baptized her. And it was certainly not an easy, neat solution, but I believe that she demonstrated to true repentance by being obedient to God in spite of the personal difficulties, end quote. See, that's a sober thing, but that, that is, it seems, what is going on here, at least that this interpretation is correct. And thank you for going with me 
through the weeds. Don't have all of my problem passages in the Bible figured out yet. I have had several of them resolved by God's grace. Some more difficulties. But the, if, 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 if they were pagan women like Ruth and Rahab that left their idols for the true and living God, that would present an easy solution. That would be one thing. But if they loved their idols more, the people of Israel could not continue living with the people of the land and immoral, immorality. And uh, this much is clear from the law of God. That is, in fact, fornication, if not actually adultery, depending on the situation. So I hope that answers some of the questions. Now let's come to what's much more clear. Uh, this is a passage about repentance and the need for every generation to continue it. As we read in Ezra and Nehemiah, every generation of God's people finds itself in a great struggle to maintain faithful devotion to the Lord. Every generation finds um, temptations and excuses, and we find that again and again, the repenters have to repent. Uh, this is written for the generations that follow uh, this book, Ezra's writing, in order to tell them this fact about the godly life and to urge them to press on, therefore, in their struggle and to teach them some important lessons that they had to learn the hard way about repentance. Well, what lessons, you ask? Well, number one, obviously, repentance is not easy. Yeah, we probably would have heard some more amens, but the fact is we all had sore hearts. We know it's the truth. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it, says Jesus. And there is a warfare that... Uh, Repentance means if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, just cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands or two feet to be thrown into the fire, Jesus says. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Many such passages that speak about this extreme struggle that we find not just in every generation, but in every sincere godly heart. The general point is that no one can go uh, easily on a bed of ease into the kingdom of God, safe and secure. Heaven must be taken by storm, and therefore repentance is never easy, certainly not for a community as Ezra did it. If you're looking for the easy way out, it's not going to be repentance, and we've known this at various times uh, in the church. It's not going to be without repentance, right? Uh, okay. So, number two, repentance is primarily toward God. And that is the emphasis here in the passage that we need to turn from sin unto God. Saul and Judas might have both said, I've sinned, but they did not turn back to the God of mercy. But Ezra is prostrating himself and praying, verse 1, before the house of God. Shechaniah admits we have been unfaithful to our God. They make a covenant with God, for they trembled at his commandments. And all the way through, while sin hurts other people, and we must ask their forgiveness the great sin, first and foremost, has been against our God. And that's why we sang with David that even after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, then murdered her husband, in effect, uh, no doubt sinning against them grievously. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, 2 Samuel 12. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 51, Psalm 51, verse 4. David had done plenty of sins in Bathsheba and, her, and Uriah, if not the whole nation. But those sins were nothing in comparison with David's offense against the great God of heaven. And so 
you know, when people are caught with things, sometimes they're really sorry they did it. Sometimes they're even sorry they hurt people. But, but real repentance is repentance toward God. And unless that is driving you on, turning back to your God, it's going to be a very incomplete or insincere repentance. Our repentance must primarily be toward our Father in heaven. Third, repentance deeply feels sorrow before God. Uh, Both Ezra and those around him are weeping bitterly at the beginning of this chapter, seeing how unfaithful God's people had been. They were trembling at God's word. Paul says godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So, you know, we don't have to be weeping over relatively minor sins, of course, but when we sin in a major way, it's appropriate to deeply grieve over what we have done. Uh, Peter, after denying the Lord, went out and wept bitterly. And I remember a, a comment by Lancelot Andrews, one of the great translators of the King James Bible, in one of his prayers, he said, I need more tears, I plainly need them. Just how difficult it is truly to feel sorrow before God when you need to do it. It's not an easy thing to do, point one. But it is primarily before God, point two, that we must sorrow. And so it is that repentance deeply feels sorrow before God. Fourth, repentance accepts responsibility. Um, Verse two, we have trespassed against our God. They they, they don't cover it. a marvelous prayer of repentance in the last chapter that lays it all out, right? They're not making themselves the victims. They're not saying, well, these women, you know. Um, when Marion Barry, the former mayor of Washington, D.C., some of us can remember, was caught on video uh, using cocaine in a prostitute's room, he, quote, I quote the, uh, he, he, quote, admitted that his cocaine problem came about because he cared too deeply for too long about too many other people's needs. <laughs> Mary and Barry, what a character. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it, the, it, the only thing funnier is Adam standing there in the, in the, in the paradise of a garden with his, uh, with his finger like this, also pointing up, you know, God, it's, it's this woman whom you gave me. She gave me to eat of the tree of the fruit of the, of, uh, the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and I ate, right? Um, you know, If there's any blaming, it's not genuine repentance. If there's any excuses, it's not genuine repentance. It's not the woman you gave me. Genuine repentance says God is right, that you may be justified when you speak and blameless or righteous when you judge. That is the whole truth, period. Sixth, repentance lays hold of the mercy of God. It lays hold of the mercy of God. Now, after all this repentance and confessing the sinfulness of the people and how awful all this is, Uh, I love this guy, Shechaniah here. This man knows his God. He declares in verse 2, Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And this is very important. For repentance is uh, the the sorrow that returns us to God, or at least the sorrow uh, returns us to God in repentance, to lay hold of his mercy. Uh, because you see, for us, uh, hope and mercy have a name. Yes, we know the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and repentance is not just moping around, right? It's laying hold of the mercy of God that is available to us in Christ Jesus. 
let me speak personally, there is no reason for any of you to remain one minute longer locked up in your guilt and the prison cell of your regret with giant despair guarding the door. There is no reason to stay imprisoned by the power of sin and Satan when the Lord has given you the key out of this prison. It is the promise that in repentance and returning to the Lord, you will find abundant mercy through Jesus Christ. And that is a mighty, mighty weapon. Uh, listen again to this classic definition of repentance from our church's shorter catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Did you get all that? It's not just uh, seeing sin for its evil. It's seeing the mercy of God in Christ. It's not just turning from sin, but it's turning from sin to God in Christ. And this is the great thing about repentance. This is why all the stuff that you've done has made you so miserable. But when you repent and turn back to the Lord, this is the source of all happiness, joy, and glory. Why, there's even more, more joy in heaven over the... One sinner who repents than the 99 who doesn't, don't need repenting. There's just joy everywhere. So I say to you that repentance is uh, the joy of laying hold of God's mercy, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, there may be a great repentance at the beginning, but a repentance that continues daily so long as we're in the world. The ongoing beat of the Christian heart, an ongoing sorrow for sin, and a returning to God, coming back from the faraway country, and saying, Father, I have sinned, right? Uh, pleading for the divine strength to the Holy Spirit to walk more closely with him that we might live by grace and mercy to his glory. So the Bible frequently calls upon us to renew our repentance, returning every day to the Lord to renew the joy of our salvation. And seventh and finally, genuine repentance is something that is very blessed and fruitful. Genuine repentance is very blessed and fruitful. It, uh, it, of course, leads to practical steps, undo the, the things we wish we had never done. As much depends on us. Sometimes there's, there's sins that there's just no easy solutions for. Of course, probably this is one of those situations. But there is nothing quite so fruitful as a vigorous repentance toward God. And so wrote to the Corinthians, you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. Such a fruitful and powerful thing. And every great powerful movement of God in history, every revival in history, including this one in the book of Ezra, has involved repentance in a major way. In fact, it's interesting that Martin Luther rather inadvertently touched off the Reformation with his 95 theses that began when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Um, and so it, so it was, not just in one life, but in a nation and then in another nation, and it shook the world. Repentance is one of the great characteristics of God's major dealings and workings in the world, not just in times of widespread revival, but each, even in personal revival. When a powerful fruitful repentance comes. What a blessed and fruitful 
thing it was. Talk, talking to a young woman uh, who had been for the last uh, couple years living, she says that the LGBT life in this past two weeks, a complete change of heart and life, turning back to the Lord with power and vigor, telling her friends about all that has, has changed, uh, telling them the good news of Jesus, uh, the, the, the scripture, a new book to her, um, what, what a wonderful, wonderful thing, what a fruitful, blessed thing it is when we see repentance in someone's life. I, I, I'm just, I've just been blessed and encouraged as well. So I conclude with one more historical example, back to Romania, back to the revival I mentioned earlier as we conclude. One man writes of what happened to him in 1980. He says, I was a pastor in Germany when I went to Romania, and I saw something I'd never seen before. I went to the city of Oradea, and here were Christians who were persecuted, Christians who lost their jobs, Christians who went to prison for their faith. I went to preach in a church there, and God was moving. It was, it was this church that I told you about. I had a singing group with me, and we arrived about two hours before the church service to set up our sound equipment, and there, scattered throughout the church, were people praying, weeping, crying quietly in pews all over the church, calling out to God. And as I walked in, there was this sense of God is here. The repenters were repenting. Something was afoot. And by the time the service started, he said, there wasn't room for the people. They stood around the pulpit and outside on the streets just to hear the word of God. In early 1984, I went back to that church again, and I stood in that church and preached. The place was packed. People were standing down the aisles. Many came to know Christ that night. After the service was over, one of the leaders of the church came up and said, Brother Sammy, did, did the Lord work? I said, what, what do you mean, did the Lord work? What are you, why are you asking me this? Didn't you see how many people were here and people came to Christ? Why, why are you asking me, did the Lord work? He said, oh, you don't understand. I was not in the sanctuary. I was in another room with 100 men while we were praying the whole time that you were preaching. And there was another room with 100 women, and they were all praying the whole time that you were preaching. Up until that time, I had never been anywhere where there were 100 men and 100 women praying the whole time I was preaching. The man was arrested. Uh, he was thrown out of the country. Um, he, they, they said to him, uh, some of the last words he, he heard from them, you will never, you will never, you will never be in Romania again. Just a few years later after the revolution, he came back uh, with a friend. They had some Bibles uh, in the car. And um, the uh, man at the checkpoint uh, said, are you a Christian? He said his heart leaped up into his throat. And he said, yes. The man threw his arms around him and said, welcome, brother, to the new Romania. <laughs> when repenters repent, the nations shake. And you know what? This chapter says it's a struggle in every generation, but there is always room at the cross for you, brother, and for me. Let's go there now. Our Father in heaven, how we long to see the fruitfulness of repentance again become our joy and our, our, our zeal with what uh, vehemence, with uh, uh, what uh, uh, sorrow, with, with what uh, endeavor we would long to have some new repentance in our lives. Give us uh, grace and wisdom and opportunity. Oh, may we glorify you in this way you again for the way of the cross, which is to us uh, a uh, 
a, a time of pain and difficulty to carry it, carry it follow the Savior. And yet how there is joy in the journey as well as the joy that is set before us as we look unto Jesus and pray that in him that you would give us the joy day by day of a life of repentance. We pray it for his sake.